We're in a series called Let's Eat, which is about family. And uh, today we're going to be talking, as Pastor Sam said, about blended family. If you have your app and you've looked at the notes in the app, you know that the name of this message is called McFlurry Family. Okay? Any of y'all like to get McFlurries? Oh, look at all y'all acting like you don't eat ice cream or anything like that. Okay, my son says yes. Okay, so you go get dessert, you know, you get a McFlurry, you probably don't just get the ice cream by itself. That's not a McFlurry. You gotta mix other stuff into it. So some of my kids like uh, Butterfinger, some of my kids like M&Ms, some of my, y'all are clapping for food. Go ahead, if I mention your favorite, just knock yourself out. That's all right. I like uh, the chocolate chip cookie dough. I like that stuff, yeah. I could just eat that with a Diet Coke, and I'm good. Um, there are other things that get mixed in there, too. One of my sons could take a McFlurry and a piece of cake, put it in a bowl, and mix the whole thing together. Yeah, look at that. <laughs> Man, I didn't know ice cream got y'all jazzed so much like this. You just mix it all together and eat it. Now, all of those things are good by themselves, right? Cookie dough, I could just do that. M&Ms, I could just do that too with a Diet Coke right next to me. Oh, it doesn't matter what it is. They're all good on their own. But when you put those things together, oh, I can't forget Oreos. We got to get Oreos in there. Yes. You put those Oreos and that cookie dough and all that stuff together, and you give it to my son, and he mixes it for you. They all tasted good on their own. But when you put those things together, the flavor of one brings out something in the flavor of the other one. And they just taste so good together. Now, here's my prediction. Last week, Pastor Sam preached combination low men. And how many of y'all went out and got Chinese last week? Yeah, yeah, look at that. All the Chinese restaurants in the area had a bump up in their clientele. So this week, I'm wondering how many McFlurries are going to get sold because all y'all are now thinking, what McFlurry am I going to get or wherever you go? It brings out the best in all of those different items when you mix those things together. And the same is true when we are blending family together. And so we're going to focus on blended family today. But I want to read the passage of Scripture first that serves as a foundation for us. It's from the book of Joshua. And as you know, if you were here, Pastor Sam said, Joshua is getting to the end of his life, and he's speaking as a father to the nation. And here's what he says. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So they were worshiping idols in Egypt and other places. And Joshua is saying, put those things away. But if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. So here a God, there a God, everywhere a God, God. That's what comes to mind when I read this passage of Scripture. Joshua was saying there are idols all over the place and you can choose to serve any one of them if you want to. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
And so Joshua says, listen, that's what, that's what my choice is. We're going to serve the Lord. And Pastor Sam in his first message says, it's about me and my house. But before it's about me and my house, it's about me and my spouse. But before it can be about me and my spouse, it's got to first be about me. Because I can't be what I'm supposed to be with my spouse and my house won't be what it's supposed to be if I'm not who I'm supposed to be. And then in his second message last week, Pastor Sam was directing his words at husbands, which was combination low men. And he was talking about the need for humility and unconditional love, love that is sacrificial, love that sanctifies, love that is satisfying. And he focused on men in that message. This week, we're going to focus on blended families. So first of all, what is your family supposed to be? Blended or not, what's your family supposed to be? Your family really is supposed to be a microcosm of the body of Christ. What you see in the church family at large is what your home ought to be. Uh, so if you read Colossians chapter 3, for example, the Apostle Paul's writing and he's talking about what we should be like in the body of Christ. We're supposed to put certain things off, get rid of certain things in our lives and put certain things on. We're supposed to adopt certain characteristics and habits. But he's moving toward talking about the family and when he gets to a certain section, he says, listen, you need to put on love and humility and forgiveness and all these different things. And then he goes into a section that says, and you're supposed to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And you think to yourself, am I supposed to do that in the context of my family? Well, yeah, that your home needs to be a place of worship. What you see here together, you can't have this great worship team at home. You can if you pull up wind and embers and all of that stuff, but they're not going to come to your house and lead worship, but you can have an attitude of worship in your house with your family. You can put on kindness and humility. What this church body, what this church family is supposed to be, your family is a microcosm of. As a matter of fact, if your family is not all it's supposed to be, the church won't be all it's supposed to be. Just like pastor said, it begins with you and then goes to you and your spouse and you and your house. Then we can have a healthy church family at large. And so goes the family, so goes the church, so goes the society at large. So we're going to talk about blended family today because every family faces challenges, but there are certain challenges and pitfalls that blended families face that can be a little bit different. Actually, the truth be told, some of the challenges we're going to talk about today, any family can bump into. Blended or not, irrespective of what your makeup is, you can run into these, but blended families are especially set up for certain challenges. And there are many different paths to becoming a blended family. Uh, sometimes there's divorce, remarriage, maybe there's a loss of a spouse. Irrespective of how you got to be in a blended family, God has the call for your household to be that microcosm of the body of Christ. Doesn't matter what was before, what is now with your family has that calling and God wants you to succeed. I grew up in a blended family. And so I ended up having four of everything. So, you know, you got mom and dad, and then they ended up divorcing and so forth, and then they remarried. And so then you had stepmom and stepfather. So now I got grandparents with my mom, I got grandparents of my dad. I got grandparents that go with my stepmom. Some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. Then the grandparents that go with my stepfather, and then I have step 
siblings with my stepmother. And as you can tell, after a while, it gets really hard to tell you who's who in the zoo. You know, because there's so many people. And my poor kids. You know, as they got older, it's like, Dad, who's this one? Who's that one? Who's in that picture with you? And then I'm adopted. And so when I was about 29 or 30 years old, I reconnected with my biological mom and that family. So now I got more people to explain. So I have my mom, who's my adoptive mom, but that's mom and my stepmom and my biological mom and now my biological cousins and, and so on and so forth. I understand what it's like to grow up in a blended family. And I also know some of the traps that blended families can fall into. And we're going to talk about some of those today. But first of all, you might be thinking, well, why are we focusing on blended families? Why do we have to point out blended families? Aren't we just families like everybody else's? Well, you have the same calling as every family does, but there's some unique things that make blended families what they are. And there are some statistics that tell us we really need to pay attention if we're living in a blended family. Did you know that 40% of the households in our country are blended families? where at least one of the spouses has a child from a previous relationship. Definition of a blended family technically is when two people come together in marriage and one or both of them have biological children from a previous relationship. That's kind of what a blended family, the definition is. I know, like I said, there are many paths to becoming a blended family, but that's kind of the general definition. 40% of our households in our country fall into that category. Did you know that 60 to 70% of marriages subsequent to your first marriage tend to end in divorce. They fail. 60 to 70%. Now, if you're in this room and you're in a blended family and your marriage, second marriage or whatever is successful, that's great. We celebrate that and that's what we want to see. But you also need to realize that there's a sizable number of households that fall into the blended family category that struggle just like that. Because statistically, the more a person marries, the more likely they are to divorce. And we don't want that to happen because God wants your family to succeed. He wants your marriage to succeed. I don't care if it's your first or second or whatever. He wants your family and your marriage to succeed. And we've got to be aware of that. And I don't say that to discourage you. I say that to tell you. We need to focus in on some things and understand some of the dynamics that go along with blended families so we don't fall into those categories, so that we don't become statistics like that. And so today we're going to look at some of those challenges. And we're going to focus on the story of a family whose father, the main guy, his name is Jacob. So we're going to go back to the book of Genesis. Now, if you read the book of Genesis, you'll know that at the very beginning, we find out God created and so forth, and instantly, humanity falls into sin. So we find out what our problem is right away. But already in Genesis chapter 3, Jesus is being predicted. God is foreshadowing that Christ is going to come in order to bring redemption from that sin. That's already in chapter 3. But for Jesus to come, God's going to bring him through a people. He's going to bring him through a nation. But he doesn't start with a nation. He starts with a family, and that's the family that we're going to look at. And that family is very important because that family is in the line of the nation that's going to bring Jesus himself. What happens in that family is important, and what we can learn from that family is very important. In fact, this family is so important that Jacob actually has his name changed by God to Israel. 
So the nation itself gets named after Jacob. You read scripture, sometimes you see Jacob called Jacob. Sometimes you see Jacob called Israel. That's how important this family is. And so we're going to look at what happens. So Jacob has a large family. Now, listen, this story covers like basically Genesis 29 to 50. Now just calm down. I am not going to read 21 chapters of scripture to you. So y'all can breathe again. But I am going to kind of walk you through very quickly and give you an overview. We're going to cover all those chapters because it's an amazing, interesting, crazy story. So Jacob has a large family, 12 sons and one daughter, time out. That all by itself is dysfunctional. <laughs> all by itself. Whenever I read that, I'm sorry, Bernadette, I'm going to pick on you. Whenever I read that, I think of my father-in-law. My father-in-law was one of 15 children. Every time I say that, everybody goes, oh. One of 15 children. Now, it was back in the day, and so, you know, medicine's advanced a bit. So three of them died in childhood. So that left 12 children. The first 11 were all boys. Oh, my God. I love it. The first 11 were all boys, and the 12th one was a girl, and she became a nun. Yeah. And some of you all are thinking, just like me, she became a nun because she had enough of dealing with men. So she became a nun. In fact, last fall, Bernadette and I were with her. We got to visit her in, uh, she lives in Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh area, and she is a feisty nun. But she is feisty. Yeah, I'm not going to tell stories because they're too feisty. But, uh, but we got to visit with her. And she has been a nun. Last year, she celebrated 70, right? 70 years as a nun. 70 years. Wow. And she told us a story that when she went into the convent, she was thinking, there's no way I'm going to make it. But her mom, side note, there's some stubborn people in my wife's family. Okay. So her mom said to her, you'll never make it two weeks. So Francine said, I may not survive being a nun, but I'm going to make it for two weeks if it's the last thing I do. So 70 years later, she's still a nun. 12, can you imagine 11 or, and Jacob has 12 sons, all right? A large household. And a household in, in the Old Testament wasn't just, okay, mom, dad, kids. Households were very large. It included parents, children, uh, the children of the children, the servants, the children of the servants. We know that the, the Jacob had a large household because over 70 people went with him when he eventually moved down to Egypt. This is a large group of people. And so his sons, they're grown and they're older because there's probably a big span between them, but they are still in his household. So he has his 12 sons. And one of the sons though is treated as the favorite and that's Joseph. Joseph is the second to the last son, okay? So here's what happens uh, in Jacob's household. Uh, we know that, uh, that Joseph is treated as his favorite, and so his 11 other brothers, well, actually 10 of them, 10 of his other brothers, they do not like him at all. Did any of you grow up in a household where you were considered the favorite? Just admit it, I was, yes, come on, okay. I was the baby of the family and I was considered the favorite, but the real reason was I watched what my older siblings did and didn't do that stupidity. That's why I was, now how many of you all grew up in a house where somebody else was the favorite? Look at that. That's great. 
What, do, son, really? All y'all are my favorites. You're all my favorite children. Wow. Jesus. So, we'll deal with that later. So, <laughs> no. The one they think is the favorite declares it all the time. I'm the golden child, so. No, the reality is, though, that, uh, that Joseph was treated as the favorite, and it really drove his brothers crazy, okay? And Joseph starts having dreams, and the dreams really are from the Lord, but Joseph can't keep his trap shut. So he's always talking about how God's given me these dreams, and I'm going to be a leader, and you guys are going to serve me. That does not go over very well. If you get dreams from the Lord about doing great things, probably stay quiet about it. Okay. Joseph doesn't. His brothers hate him all the more. So they go out one day and they're taking care of Jacob, their father's livestock. And because he was a wealthy businessman, he probably had a lot of livestock. They're taking care of it. Jacob says to Joseph, go out and check on your brothers. So I can just see Joseph going out to check on his brothers. And they see him way off in the distance. And I can just see the heat rising off the Middle Eastern ground. And they know that it's him because daddy had given him this coat that had long sleeves and it was really colorful. And they probably can't see his face at all, but they can discern those colors on that coat. And while he's coming, they're thinking, we're going to murder this kid. Okay? Now, I know growing up in a household, you probably thought you would like to kill one of your siblings at some time. But to sit there and actually plot that you're going to murder this guy, and as he gets closer and closer, finally they just say, well, we're not going to murder him. So they throw him in a pit so that he can't get out. And uh, they say, we'll decide what to do with him eventually. And uh, what they end up doing is some traders come by. They're on their way down to Egypt. And so they sell their brother to traders going to Egypt. Can you imagine actually selling your sibling? Some of y'all are thinking, I would really like to sell some of my siblings, actually. <laughs> they sold their brother off into slavery. So he, he goes off and, I mean, it's unbelievable the evil that it takes to be able to pull off something like that. What are they going to tell their father? Well, what they do is they end up killing a goat. They take Joseph's coat that was so nice. They rub the animal's blood on it, give that to Jacob, and let him think that a wild animal ate his son. Joseph, meanwhile, goes down to Egypt where he gets sold again, but this time he gets bought by a very high Egyptian official whose name is Potiphar. We'll come back to him later. And the Lord is with Joseph in all of this. More than one time, the scripture says that. It's important to remember. Despite Joseph's flaws, the Lord was with Joseph. So he rises in rank in Potiphar's house, but eventually Potiphar's wife takes a liking to him. She falsely accuses him of attempting to rape her. Joseph gets thrown in prison. And while he's in prison, he ends up interpreting some dreams for some of Pharaoh's servants because Pharaoh, the head of all Egypt, he had thrown a couple of his servants into prison. They got in trouble. Joseph interprets a couple of dreams for them. Eventually, one of them says to Pharaoh, hey, this guy can interpret dreams. Joseph interprets a dream or two for Pharaoh and gives Pharaoh so much wisdom that Pharaoh takes him out of the prison, makes him number two in all of Egypt, and the story turns from there. All right. Now, that's the general overview of some serious dysfunction that went on in this family. But I want to go back and look at three snapshots to help us see some of the pitfalls that blended families can bump into because Jacob's family ran into it. And I want to start with Jacob first. 
If you go back in Jacob's history, Jacob had one brother named Esau. Now, just like Jacob treated Joseph as the favorite, Jacob's mom treated him as the favorite. And Jacob actually stole a couple of things from his brother Esau. He tricked his brother uh, out of a birthright and he tricked his brother out of the family blessing. He stole the family blessing that his brother was supposed to get because his brother was the oldest. And the reason why the brother was the oldest son, the oldest brother was supposed to get this blessing wasn't because oldest sons were favorites. It was because the oldest son had a responsibility. He got a bigger inheritance because he was supposed to take over overseeing the entire family and caring for everyone. It was a position of great blessing, but also a position of great responsibility. Esau wants it, but Jacob steals it, and his mom helps him do it. Apparently, Esau was very hairy, and so... Jacob's dad is old and he's going to die and Esau's out in the field trying to get some animal stuff together because he's getting ready to get the blessing from the dad and Jacob goes in and takes like goat skins, literally puts them on because mom's like, hey, if you put on some goat skins, go in there, your dad will think you are your brother Esau and just every time I read that, I'm thinking, how hairy does a brother have to be? that you put on goat skin and your dad's like, oh yeah, that's just like my son Esau. That's Finding Bigfoot right there. That's it. I used to watch Finding Bigfoot because it's so cheesy. So, so that's how he stole the blessing. Then Jacob ends up having to leave because Esau wants to kill him. So Jacob runs. His mom says, go stay with my brother's family. Go, get, go be with those people. So he runs and he, he finds his, his uncle Laban and then he meets this young woman named Rachel. And he immediately, this is love at first sight. He immediately falls in love with her. And he says, Laban, I want to marry her. What do I need to do? Laban says, okay, but you need to work for me seven years. Here's my first time out. If you're paying attention, you notice that Jacob and Rachel are cousins. Okay? I just want to give you a side note. We don't do that anymore. Okay, different time, different place, different culture, smaller pool of people to choose from. You got a bigger pool to draft from. So, you know, that was, that was not a thing in that culture. So when you read scripture, if you're new to reading scripture, that was something that was acceptable in that culture. If you come and say, I want to marry my cousin in our day, I need to not say the next line. So I'm just going to leave it alone. Don't marry your cousins. That was a different type of a thing they had going on there. But they are cousins. But Jacob falls in love with Rachel, works for seven years. That's some serious love. Works for seven years to get her. When he gets to the end of those seven years, instead of giving him Rachel, Laban gives the firstborn daughter, Leah, to him. And Jacob is ticked because he wants Rachel, not Leah. So Laban's like, okay, yes, you can have Rachel too. So wait a week. And after this week is done, you can then have Rachel as your wife, but you need to work for me for another seven years. So Jacob's like, okay, he really wants Rachel. So then he marries Rachel. So now you have Leah and Rachel, sisters, and they are competing with each other because everyone knows Jacob loves Rachel. But Leah starts having children, and Rachel is not having children. And after a while, Rachel says to Jacob, you need to take my servant and you need to take her as a wife and start having children with her that I can get credit for. So 
Rachel gives the servant to uh, Jacob as his wife. Jacob now has three wives, and Leah and that servant are having children, but Rachel still is not. But then Leah stops having children, so she says to Jacob, take my servant as another wife and have children with her that I can get credit for. So now Jacob has four wives. Second time out. When, <laughs> yes. I can't say that and not comment on, you know, this is not sister wives. We don't do, we don't do that stuff now. But people do read scripture and say, well, why is it that this happens? You know, Pastor Sam, Pastor Brenda, people of the church are always saying one man, one woman for life. Why is this going on? And why does it seem like God's okay with it? Well, let me just tell you this. God is not okay with it. At the very beginning, Genesis 2.24, it says, a man will leave his father and mother and he will bond with his wife and the two will become one flesh. That was God's intention from the beginning. Okay? You need to understand that in this culture and the surrounding cultures, polygamy was a perfectly acceptable thing. It was not what God wanted, but it was what went on societally. And there are other passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that allude to the fact that God wanted you to have one woman, but everybody that I've ever read, seen, talked about says the only thing we know is that God has incredible grace and mercy because that was not his chosen plan. But he uses these people anyway. As a matter of fact, when you get to the New Testament and you look at the words of Jesus, whenever he references marriage, he only, he goes back to Genesis 2.24. He only references, in the beginning, God said, a man will leave his father and mother and become united to his wife, not wives. So when you read about polygamy in the Old Testament, it is describing what happened, not prescribing something that should be done. It was not God's plan. It was something that he had great grace and mercy on and used those people anyway. But the fact of the matter is, wherever you find polygamy, you will find trouble. Every place in scripture where you find it, you will find trouble. I was just reading in my own devotions yesterday where Gideon had 70 sons. Good Lord. 70 sons, what are you doing? Actually, I know what you're doing, but sorry. It says he had 70 sons and many wives, and he has this one concubine, and he has a child not only with his wives, but his concubine, and guess what happens? That son from his concubine killed off all the rest so that he could be large and in charge. Everywhere you see this stuff go on, there is trouble, okay? But I take great hope in knowing that if God would use those people despite some of the huge flaws that he has, what do you think he can do with you and me? The grace and mercy that he has for us to use us. Yeah. But I also want to give you a warning. Don't think that you can be an abuser of God's grace. Like, hey, God used Jacob, God used Gideon, God used whatever, and they were messing up, gumming up the work, so it didn't matter if I do this thing over here. Just like there was heartache with polygamy, whatever disobedience we allow in our lives, whatever grace we abuse, we will pay the price for that. We will. So we need to be people who are pursuing what God wants us to do, living in the center of his will. But this is what was going on in Jacob's world. So he has four wives, and he ends up having these 12 sons with these four wives. And so, you know, there's a challenge right there because all of these, all of these guys are seeing one thing come out of their father, Jacob, and that is this. Here's his problem. Jacob 
has fracturing favoritism. That's what I call it. Fracturing favoritism. So he has worked for Rachel for really 14 years, okay? And he's got his own family and the family's growing and it's being built up. But he also has two children finally with Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. When Rachel is giving birth to Benjamin, she only had two children. When she's giving birth to her youngest, she dies in childbirth. That leaves Joseph as the only tangible evidence that Jacob has of Rachel. He has lost the love of his life and Joseph is his firstborn son with her. She's the one he loved and he treats him with favoritism, but his favoritism fractures his family. In fact, here's what it says in Genesis 37, 3 and 4. Now Israel, remember Jacob gets called Israel, Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age and he made a long-sleeved robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. His mom did it when he was little and now he's doing the exact same thing. After all, he is Rachel's flesh and blood. Joseph is Rachel's flesh and blood. But here's what happens because of Joseph's favoritism. And it's true in every family, blended family or otherwise. Favoritism causes resentment and alienation. It is poison to family relationships. And the kind of favoritism Joseph showed happens in blended families far too often. There's actually a name for it. It's called biological favoritism. Now, favoritism can show up in other ways. This is one of the most common ways in blended families. So what's biological favoritism? Biological favoritism is when uh, one parent shows favoritism for their biological children as opposed to the children of their spouse. That is not their biological children. And you know, it doesn't just go from parents to kids. It can flow in a lot of different directions. So and so is my favorite because we are flesh and blood. Biological favoritism. And it's not just a parent thing either. It is a grandparent thing too. I actually read an account recently, uh, a true account of a couple that got married. One spouse had four biological children from a previous relationship. The other spouse had one biological child. Okay? Grandparents of the four over here would show up to family stuff and they would give this one non-biological child to them. They would give that child eh, a t-shirt, maybe something. Oh, here's a little gift for you or whatever. Maybe pick that up at Goodwill. <laughs> I don't know. You know, but these over here, they would give like a shirt to this one and literally turn and give hundreds of dollars worth of stuff to each one of their biological grandchildren. When they died, they left absolutely nothing to this child over here because it wasn't their biological child. And they left everything they could to the four biological children over here. And listen, if you're listening to me and you think, well, what's wrong with that? That makes sense. That is a problem. That's a huge problem. That's not how family's supposed to work. And Jacob's family is the prime example. It's never what God intended for families to be. Listen, I understand closeness and, and the bond that comes from flesh and blood. I get that stuff. But I also can tell you that relationships can be just as close without being biological. I told you I was adopted, okay? Uh, I was adopted when I was two months old, and I have one older brother, one older sister. My adoptive family is all Caucasian. So from the very beginning, they told me I was adopted because eventually we're taking a family picture. 
And there's something different about me there. They always told me I was adopted. It was a very healthy thing. And they would explain to me why they thought my adoption took place, why my birth mom couldn't keep me and so forth. And they actually ended up being 100% right on as to what the story was, even though they didn't really know it. But I can tell you this. I never once felt like I was not a biological member of my adoptive family. Never one time. Okay? Um, I, never, I knew it, but I never felt that way. The bond that I have with my mom is just as if she had given birth to me. That's not, and I was never treated. There was no biological favoritism. Everything was just even and out in the open. And because of that, I was able to grow up and be uh, what I think is a healthy person. Okay. Some of y'all need to be careful. It's the front row people. Seriously. And when it came time that I was actually going to reconnect with my biological mom, it wasn't because I felt that I needed to. Okay? It was because my wife and my adoptive mom said, you should look. Because I was perfectly satisfied with the family that I had. I'm glad I looked and I had a great relationship with my biological mom. She passed away in uh, September of 2020. But my adoptive family I can tell you, you can have just a closer relationship and not be technically blood related. Okay? That's what family is supposed to be. Galatians 3.28, the apostle Paul is writing and he says, in Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew. Slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. We are all in a common relationship with Jesus. In the context of Galatians, Paul is saying, we don't accept or reject based on being Jew or non-Jew. That's biology. We don't accept or reject people in the body of Christ based on biology. We love and accept because Jesus has done that for us. Now take that truth and apply it to your family. And listen, here's the truth. If you can't accept and, and love people who aren't biologically connected to you in your family, how in the world are we gonna do that in the body of Christ? How are we going to do that? We say things like, we want God to give everybody to Grand Rapids first. The people nobody loves. The people nobody wants. Yeah, but then you go home, you can't love your own family. Okay? If we're going to be what we're supposed to be as a church body, we've got to be what we're supposed to be in the context of our families. And if the family's blended, biology or not, you are called to love and accept. Just like the Apostle Paul is saying about the body of Christ. Jacob's favoritism fractured his family so that they were alienated from one another and they were alienated from him. I mean, when you actually sell your brother off and let your dad think that, that he was eaten by a wild animal, that's alienation from your father. So how do you know if it's, it's at play in your family? How do you know if favoritism is at play in your family? Look for the fruit. Look for disconnection and resentment. You know, a person showing favoritism, you may not even realize that you're doing it. But once you see that stuff bearing fruit in your family, own up to it. Deal with it. And purpose to be inclusive and accepting like you want Jesus to be for you. So we cannot have favoritism, whether it goes from grandparent to grandchild, parent to child, child to someone else. Favoritism fractures. I understand why it happens, but that's not what God's called us to do or be in the context of our families. That's the snapshot of Jacob. Now let's look at the snapshot of Jacob's 10 sons that hated Joseph. 
Not only are they frustrated that Joseph is Jacob's favorite, they have a problem too. Jacob's problem was fracturing favoritism, but their problem is divided loyalties. That's their problem. Now remember, Jacob had four wives and had children with all of them. They all have Jacob as their father, but they don't all have the same mama. So they are all not loyal in the same way. And you know they had to have seen their moms talking. They had to have known about the dynamic between Rachel and Leah. You know that stuff trickled down into the, into the children. You know they heard competitive comments. They might be loyal to their full-blood brothers, but loyalty to everybody else, that's more questionable. They should all be loyal to Jacob since he's their father, but they weren't. They were not, and they sure weren't loyal to Joseph. And listen, I appreciate the need for earned relationships, okay? Uh, I appreciate the sense of loyalty that you can feel for certain relationships. Blended family relationships need time to build, okay? I get that. That's natural and normal, and that's okay. Step family members don't just get to jump in and replace relationships that are already there. Okay? I understand that. But I understand the loyalty that can jump in place. As I told you, I was adopted, okay? I had a loyalty to my mom and my dad, even though they divorced and had remarried. There was a loyalty in my heart that I had for the titles mom and dad. You may not relate to this at all, but it meant something to me. So my dad was the only man on this planet that ever got to be called dad by me, okay? Uh, my stepfather, I did not call him dad. And it wasn't out of disrespect or any other thing. It was out of loyalty to my father, okay? The same was true for my mom. My stepmom did not get to be called mom by me. Mom got to be called mom. Uh, even when I reconnected with my biological mom, I didn't call her mom. And she understood that and appreciated that because my mom adopted me and chose me. And my mom's the one who taught me how to tie my shoes and change my diaper, helped me with algebra. That didn't go so well, but she tried. Um, worked her heart out so that I could go to college and come out the other end debt-free. That's the woman who gets to be called mom. She's watching right now. Love you, mom. That's the woman who gets to be called mom. I understand that loyalty. I get that. I understand that. And here, that's not what I mean by divided loyalties, like somehow I was, my loyalties were divided. Here's what divided loyalties really mean. Divided loyalties mean I'm loyal over here, but I'm shutting my heart off to anything else over here. You understand, you can be loyal to people and relationships that you had in family, and when your family blends, you can still have a heart that's open to relationship with these people here. I get that it takes time. I get that, I get that relationships have to be built and all of those things. That's perfectly healthy and fine. But shutting off your heart and just being loyal over here and hang everything else over here, that's not what God's called your family to be. It's when you close off your heart and you remain at a distance. Now listen, calling someone step is okay, describing your family, but treating someone as step is a different category altogether. We don't treat as step. That's where the problem is. And you know, the flip side is true as well. Uh, if you want to make sure that someone never connects with you in a blended family and always stays loyal, even in the face of dysfunction with previous relationships, then criticize and undercut, because that's what's going to happen. 
You are not called to replace somebody else's previous relationships. You're called to be a bonus. You're called to be a blessing on top of. And when you don't criticize, but you choose to bless and you choose to honor, and my wife and I can tell you, we know people whose households have split up and they refuse to dishonor their former spouse, even though there may have been huge dysfunction. When that's the approach you take to give honor to all the previous relationships, irrespective of what they may have been like, then you open up people's hearts to have relationship with you. And we don't have divided loyalties. We have loyalties over here, but we're also able to make new loyalties and bring everything together because our hearts are open. God does not want our families characterized by divided loyalties. It's okay to value the connection that you had, but it's also important to embrace the building of blended family relationships. It's like Ruth in the book of Ruth who lost her husband and she's with her mother-in-law and her mother-in-law says, you can go back to, you know, your household because I really can't take care of you. And Ruth says, no, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And where you die, that's where I will be buried. That's the kind of commitment. She had a household she came from, but that's the kind of commitment she was able to build in the context of a more blended family relationship. So Jacob struggled with favoritism that fractured his family. And we don't want to have that in blended families or any family. Joseph's brothers struggled with divided loyalties. That'll kill our families. It's poison. And now let's focus in on a third snapshot, which is Joseph himself. And if you don't know Joseph's story, it's a really unique combination of really high highs, really low lows. Remember, Joseph's the one who has dreams from the Lord, that he's going to be a leader. And they were really dreams from the Lord, and he really was called to leadership, but he has a problem, okay? First, his problem is that he was spoiled by his father because of all that I talked about already. He's Rachel's firstborn son and only tangible expression that Jacob can see of Rachel and so forth. And he gets this coat from his father, which had long sleeves leaves, lots of colors in it. And it was really a symbol of the favoritism and really a symbol that Jacob understood that God was going to really do something with Joseph. Okay? He understood that. It wasn't the traditional role that, that you would play in the family because Joseph was second to youngest, but it seems like Jacob understood that, but the way that he handled it wasn't right because he fed something in Joseph that did not need to be fed. Because here's Joseph's problem. Joseph is all about Joseph, okay? Joseph struggles with self-centeredness, and it feeds the worst in his family, and it makes it so that God has to let him be humbled just so that he can use him, and Jacob should have fed Joseph's humility, not his arrogance, but that's what ended up happening. The first place we see Joseph's self-focus is him sharing his dreams with his brothers, can you imagine having a dream from the Lord and you gather your whole family around and you say, guess what? I had a dream that all of you all were bowing down to me. If one of my boys had said that to his brothers, there would be some bowing down, but it wouldn't be like you think. Okay? So this is not really good. Joseph has two dreams like that. He communicates it to his brothers and you know what the attitude of his heart really is? It's all about me, and I'm not really giving to the family. You guys are going to be serving me. It's about where I'm going and what I'm doing. So then you know that he ends up getting sold off into slavery, and he ends up in, uh, in Potiphar's house. And when he's in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife really takes a liking to him because the Scripture says, wait for it, every man wishes he could be quoted in Scripture like this. 
Joseph was handsome and well-built. If my dad were alive, he'd say, well, Scripture must be talking about me. <laughs> Joseph was handsome and well-built. And so Potiphar's wife says, hey, would you sleep with me? And when we read Joseph's response, we're like, what a hero Joseph is. He says, no, he says things like, I can't sin against God. And so, matter of fact, I'm gonna read it right here because you see the good part of Joseph's response, which is right, but there's a line in there that reveals something about Joseph. Genesis 39, eight. But Joseph refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house, and he has put all that he owns under my authority. Here's the line. No one in this house is greater than I am. That's Joseph's problem. You read it quite literally. He says, he says, Potiphar is not even above me. So Joseph got it wrong in his first household, gets sold off into slavery, and now he's in a new household. God's with him. He rises up to the top, but he doesn't get family. And so now he's saying, in this household, it's all about me and where I'm going. Potiphar shows up, and his wife says, this guy tried to rape me, and Potiphar doesn't believe his wife. We know Potiphar doesn't believe his wife, because if Potiphar really thought Joseph had tried to rape her, he would have had him executed on the spot, but he doesn't, but he's got to do something, because he's got to save his own face, and he's got to decide between the best house manager he's ever had and his wife, and he chooses Mrs. Potiphar. Joseph goes into prison. When Joseph goes into prison, the Lord is still with him. He's rising up in ranks in the prison, which is good. The question is, will Joseph learn the lesson about family that he's supposed to learn? He ends up interpreting the two dreams for the guys that end up going to Pharaoh and saying, hey, Pharaoh, this guy can interpret dreams. And when Joseph finally gets brought up to Pharaoh to interpret the dreams, Pharaoh says, I hear you can interpret dreams. And I love Joseph's response. The Lord interpret dream, interprets dreams, not me. It's like Joseph finally gets, it's not about everybody else giving to him, it's about him giving to everybody else. And so he interprets those dreams for Pharaoh. But here's the deal when you see Joseph in Potiphar's house. The favoritism and the divided loyalties have bred self-centeredness in him. What that looks like in our households, in a blended family, is I'm not about you, I'm not about this family, I may not even want this family. To the degree that you can help me get where I'm going, that's great, but I'm not contributing to this, but if you want to contribute to me, that's fine. There may be different reasons for that. There may be experiences that people have that makes them say, I'm not going to be committed to this family, I'm just committed to me, and when I'm old enough, I'm out. When I'm done with whatever, I'm out. I'll take what you give to me, but I'm not going to give back. But here's the truth. The family becomes what God intends when we act like we are supposed to act. We get where we're supposed to go when we help the family get where it is supposed to go. And Joseph had to come to the realization of that. It happens, we see it, when the family begins to reconcile. So here's what happens. The brothers have to go down to Egypt to ask for food because there's a famine. Guess who's in charge in Egypt? Joseph is because when he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, he got promoted to second in charge in all of Egypt. But there's an interesting little thing in this story, the whole 21 chapters. There's an interesting chapter that happens. If you're reading along, you get to Genesis 38 and it talks about Judah. 
And you're like, why in the world is this story in the middle of the story about Joseph? We were talking about Joseph, and all of a sudden we're talking about this guy named Judah and what happens with this woman named Tamar. It's very important to the story of family here because here's what happens. Judah, one of the 10 brothers that hated Joseph, Judah leaves his brothers. He goes, he starts his own family. Remember, there could have been a big distance between oldest and youngest. So these were grown men we're talking about. He gets married, starts a family. He has two sons. The first of his sons is so evil that God himself kills him. And whenever I read that line, I think, how bad do you have to be for God to say, I'm not even going to use somebody else. I'm just going to take you out myself. That's how evil this guy was. So then Judah says to his son, all right, you need to have a child with his widow because that's what you did. You needed to produce a firstborn son to take care of the household. But Judah's other son is doing everything but getting his, his brother's wife pregnant. That was what he was supposed to do. And God kills him. And it's just a heartbreak of a story. What ends up happening is Judah says to his daughter-in-law, you need to go back to your household. Not what Judah was supposed to do. Judah was her father-in-law. He was supposed to take care of her. What he says is, you go back there, I got a younger son, when he grows up, I'll give him to you and he can have a child with you. But what really happens is he never follows through, never gives his oldest son to the daughter-in-law he's supposed to be taken care of. So finally, she takes off her mourning clothes and she puts on other clothes. She looks like a prostitute. She intersects where Judah is going and he says, hey, here's a prostitute, I wanna sleep with her. And he ends up doing so, she gets pregnant and eventually he finds out, because he doesn't realize that this is his daughter-in-law, he thinks it's someone else. Now this story is not all about the sexual immorality part. I understand that that's there. But this story is about something else. This story is about family. So when, J or when Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law Tamar is pregnant, he's like, that's terrible. How can she be doing that? She's supposed to be mourning and she should be burned to death. And then he finds out by a series of very interesting gotcha moments that he's the one that got his own daughter-in-law pregnant. And he says, she is better than I am because I should have given my son to have a child with her. What he's saying in that moment is that he finally gets family. He finally gets, I needed to take care of her no matter what. I know there's sexual immorality and other things going on, but the real reason why that story is in there is because Judah finally wakes up to the importance of family and the role that he's supposed to play. And when the brothers go down to Egypt to ask for food of Joseph, who they don't know is Joseph. Judah is the one who stands up because Joseph puts his brothers through a series of tests and he keeps one of the brothers there. They go back home to their father, Jacob. Man, he kept one of us and he says, we have to bring Benjamin down with us and there's just all this upheaval and Jacob is all scared that he's gonna lose more children. Judah stands up and says, I'm gonna go back down there. I'll take responsibility for any child that you lose. You can put it on my head because Judah finally gets the importance of family. And in Genesis 44, he goes before his brother Joseph, not knowing that it's Joseph, and he says, Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. If I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy. 
the guy who was part of selling his brother off into slavery is now so committed to family, he's willing to become a slave to rescue his brothers. Let the boy return with his brothers. How can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. Judah gets it. He gets loyalty. He gets family. And then Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and they're reconciled. And here's how you see Joseph gets it. It says in Genesis 45, Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. They came near. I am Joseph, your brother, the one who sold you into Egypt. Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here. God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. The famine has been in this land these two years. There'll be five more. Verse seven, God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then the last line, he has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. But it's not like he thought before. Now Joseph gets, I had those dreams to serve the family not to take from the family. I had those dreams because it was about making everybody else what they should be, not just them making me what I should be. And the brothers get, it's not about loyalty to Jacob and my mama, it's about loyalty to our family. And Judah demonstrates that when he goes before Joseph and says, I'll be the slave, I'm not making someone else be a slave. And they reconcile. And what ends up happening with this highly dysfunctional family is those 10 brothers who plotted against Joseph and two of Joseph's own sons, they get the 12 tribes of Israel named after them, those people. And the nation itself is named after Jacob, the nation called Israel. God started with a family that was dysfunctional, it was blended, and the blending caused dynamics that were just terrible and tore the family apart. But when we understand that we can't have favoritism, when we understand that God's called us to love everybody, that our, our loyalties are not to be divided and that it's what we give to the family, then our families can be all that they are supposed to be. Blended or not blended, irrespective of what the journey was to this point, God wants your family to be a microcosm of the body of Christ, just like Jacob's family was to be a microcosm of the entire nation of Israel. But I know that life is life. And I know having grown up in a family, and particularly a blended family, that living the dream that happens at the end of Genesis doesn't always happen for us. And I know that in this room, there are those of you that you may not even be in a blended family, it could be a family you know, that of any kind, but you've experienced some of those things. Some of y'all do live in blended families and you've experienced some of those things. You've experienced what it feels like for favoritism to be shown to one or two or whatever and you left out in the cold. You've experienced that. You may not admit it, but if you have, you can think of it right now. You can think of those moments when you saw it. Some of you experienced the divided loyalties. You're the one with the divided loyalties. You're the ones thinking, I didn't ask for this family, don't want it to be like this, didn't ask for it to be like this. I may have allegiance over here, but my heart's closed off to this family for whatever reason. And some of us live in self-centeredness. 
we don't contribute. We're all about us because we don't want to commit to that. And remember I said early on that these things are very closely related to each other and they actually feed off of each other. Favoritism feeds self-centeredness, feeds divided loyalties, which feeds favoritism, which feeds, they all feed off of each other. And I don't represent it in this room, but there's pain in hearts from what happened in your families. You know what really stands out to me as I was thinking and praying about today? There are those of you in this room, those of you who are watching online, that you experienced some of those pitfalls of the blended family or whatever your household looked like, and it caused you to say, I don't want any part of that faith because of what I experienced. What I experienced in that family made me say, no, I don't want any part of Jesus. I don't want any part of that family. Don't care if they went to church. Don't care what the deal is. I don't want any part of that because of what I experienced in my family. But Jesus wants to bring healing to your heart today. He really does. And he wants your family to be what it's supposed to be. I know there are blended families in this room that are doing awesome. I know some of them. They love each other. They have a blast together. Uh, Their previous relationships, okay, that's fine. They're good. But they're a great family together, and they're representing Christ together. I, I know it. I love it. But I also know that there are other families that's not true for you. And God wants it to be true for you. Would you stand with me, please? Our pastors and elders.